Good morning, church. It's so exciting to be here with you on Easter morning. I uh, love getting to share with you today. And there is a traditional uh, church greeting. And I was trying to find the origin of this church greeting. And it goes a little something like this. I say he is risen. And then you reply, he is risen indeed. All right. And, uh, and so we're going to do it in just a second. But I was trying to find the origin of this greeting. And certainly the scriptures are part of the origin of the greeting. But when did it kind of catch on and, and take off in the church? And, you know, you can, you can track kind of church history and some church legend. And, and uh, it's tough to figure out where it was. But we know after about 400 years after Jesus, this was the church greeting that was a primary church greeting um, in the Eastern church and has carried on. And so for some, maybe 15, 1600 years, followers of Jesus celebrating this moment, this day, have come together all over the world and greeted each other with this greeting. So we join their voice when we say, he is risen. Amen, amen, and amen. And it's exciting to be here on a Easter Sunday. I gotta be honest with you. It never ceases to amaze me on moments and days like this. That as we look back over history, over time, as we look out in the world today, today they estimate there's probably somewhere about 2.3 billion followers of Jesus on the planet right now. 2.3 billion on the planet right now, followers of Jesus. And all of them coming together today in all kinds of different environments. Some are in homes, gathering in churches and homes. Some of them are gathering in churches that are like cathedrals and beautiful. Some of them are gathering in warehouses and schools that they've rented out. Some are gathering in fields and parks outside. Some have been forced underground and are gathering in secret. Some are, uh, are gathering in stadiums. All coming together for one reason, to celebrate a moment in history 2,000 plus years ago where one Jewish man who only did public work for about three years in a time where there was no internet, there was no snow phone, cell phones or snow phones. They weren't taking selfies. He wasn't posting an Instagram story. As a matter of fact, we don't even have letters that were written in his hand. He wasn't writing stories. He had a small group relatively of followers 11, 12 guys from a pretty working class background who he invested time in. And some 2,000 years ago, something happened. He lived, he taught a very sincere message about a God who loves us with a father's love, who wants from us relationship over obedience, what? Who wants us to love one another and our neighbors as ourselves and who cares for us? And then he died. And somehow 2000 years later, we're all gathered here today celebrating and telling the story of his life. It's amazing to me. He was Jewish. He was homeless. 
He had no earthly wealth that we can speak of. He wasn't an emperor. He wasn't a politician. He taught a message of love and compassion. Yet all over the world, people are celebrating. Some are dressing up and some are prepping meals. Some are telling stories. Some will sit in church for hours today. What in the world happened? Easter happened. So this morning, we're just going to talk about why does Easter matter? You see, Easter does matter. When I was growing up, I didn't really do the church thing. We, uh, we weren't uh, a church-going family, but I went to church with my grandmother semi-regularly. Uh, I grew up in a Puerto Rican home, and we spoke uh, Spanish except for me. And so uh, I understood when I was in trouble, and if you screamed at me, I knew what you were trying to get me to do. But I didn't speak Spanish, and we went to a Spanish-speaking church. Now, some of you who haven't been in church very much, sometimes you're frustrated because you're like, it doesn't make any sense. Now put, it doesn't make any sense into a foreign language on top of that. And that's my childhood experience with church. It didn't make any sense. And it was in a language that didn't make any sense anyways. All I knew for sure was that if I had good behavior, then lunch went better. We'd go to a nicer restaurant or I'd have a better experience. Some of you are in church right now just because you're trying to keep someone happy so that lunch will go better. We're glad you're here. And that was my experience with church. It was weird, and I didn't understand it, and I didn't know what was going on, and, and I didn't know what Easter was really about. To me, Easter was a day when I got candy, and we actually hard-boiled eggs and painted them and hid them. And then we threw them at each other because <laughs> we were kids, and that was fun. That's what Easter was about, and I, don't, I didn't have a picture of what Easter was about other than sometimes my grandmother would make me dress a little bit nicer. I didn't have a picture of what Easter was and whether or not Easter really mattered. And maybe you're here this morning and you're wondering if Easter really matters. Does it really matter what we believe and what we celebrate on this holiday? Is it just a day when, when we have let tradition take over or does the story mean something? How does it affect my life anyways at all? Maybe you have questions about did, did Easter really even happen? Was it true and is it true and why do we believe something like that? Or maybe you've been in church for a long time and you've heard the stories over and over again and you thought, oh, this is just a thing we do now and I'm hoping that the story of Easter will matter for you today. Why does Easter matter? Let me just be clear. The first reason that Easter matters is this. Easter matters because it happened. It happened. Easter matters because it happened. I was uh, doing some research and I came across this article from the Wall Street Journal as I was studying and uh, it's from back in like 2014 and they were interviewing, you got to understand, I was reading the Wall Street Journal, I was uh, uh, looking at, at research about this, and, but they were interviewing the creators of South Park. The creators of South Park, they had created some, um, some musical or something that had something to do with religion. I really don't know what it is. But they were having a conversation with these, uh, these gentlemen whose whole lives are about parody and mocking and, um, and aren't followers of, uh, of any faith, professed faith. Uh, but they did some, uh, some kind of a musical that had to do with faith. And they were asking them about it. And they were, they were replying that they thought that in lots of ways, religion did a lot of good things. And listen to this quote from these guys that didn't believe. They said, happiness and faith can be higher values than truth. 
Did you catch that? They said just being happy and having faith in something is more important than whether or not it actually happened. What is the truthfulness of religious, what if the truthfulness of religious story doesn't matter, but just faith in them does? And I was struck by this story because this is a question that our culture is asking all the time. Does it really matter what's true and what's happened or just how I feel about what happened or how it makes me feel what happened? And so these guys are asking a profound question that I think culture in the world's asking today. Does it really matter if it really happened? Does it really matter if it really happened? They're saying religion is useful as long as it promotes happiness and promotes faith, but does it really matter if the story is true or if the story is not? My happiness and my faith are high values, but truth isn't a high value. Well, I came before you this morning to let you know that Easter matters in part because it happened. It matters because it happened. And so we're going to pick up the Easter story this morning, and we're going we're gonna to circle back and talk about some of the elements of the story. The Easter story picks up where Jesus has been crucified and he's dead. And if you've been with us the last several weeks, we've been walking through the story of the last about three months of Jesus' life. And we recognize that only about three years of his life and ministry are recorded for us and that much of it focuses and centers on the last three months of his life. There's a change and a pivot in his ministry. Up until this point, he's teaching, he's traveling. We're seeing some miracles. There's lots of fish and bread uh, involved and, and uh, there's water turned into wine and, and there's blind people seeing and lame or walking. But, but there, there is just kind of a, a teaching ministry that's happening. And suddenly something pivots about 90 days out uh, uh, going towards this date of Easter, Jesus says, I'm eagerly desiring to make sure we end up in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Now, the Passover is like an epic holiday in their culture. It's a really, really big deal. And being able to celebrate it in Jerusalem is a really big deal. So the disciples and the followers of Jesus, they start uh, kind of a path towards ending and experiencing Passover in Jerusalem. And along the way, there's many powerful uh, moments in the life of Jesus that are recorded, powerful conversations, powerful teachings as he knows that he's headed towards the cross. And there's one particular moment that we focused on uh, with a man named Lazarus. And maybe you've heard the story of Lazarus, but there's a man named Lazarus and it's Jesus's uh, uh, friend's brother and he passes away. And, and the short version of the story is Jesus shows up a little bit late. Lazarus has been in the grave for four days. He stands before the grave and he says, Lazarus, come out. And the scripture says he got up and he walked out and he took off the grave clothes and he stinketh, according to the King James Version. <laughs> he was smelly, but he was alive. Now, this is a really big deal. If someone starts raising the dead, you should probably just go with whatever they say. That's the guy I'd listen to. As a result, the, the intensity of the crowds and the followers of Jesus ramps up to a fevered pitch and it gets the attention at another level of the religious leaders and of the, uh, of the governing authorities of Rome who are over this, this ragtag group of Hebrews. Now, this also has massive political implications and we've walked through this the last couple of weeks because the current governing structure had an argument going on about whether or not there was any life after death and, and that's kind of what split the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Think Democrats and Republicans. They were, they were split over this hot button topic and if Jesus is gonna go raising the dead, that's gonna mess up all their narrative. 
So they come together and they plot and plan and decide Jesus is getting too popular. If he gets more popular than us, he'll overthrow us. Rome will see how popular he is and they'll come in and kill and wipe us all out. We should probably just kill this guy. And so the story of Jesus' last several months, he withdraws from the crowds and most of their ministry starts happening in smaller environments and they start making their way towards Jerusalem while those that are in power politically start plotting how can they overthrow and kill this guy. Jesus shows up on that Palm Sunday and riding on a colt, rides into town to much fanfare. Jerusalem has swelled. Think, imagine going downtown when the fair just kicks in, right? And there's people everywhere and you're trying to get on Meridian and you can't get through. Everything has swelled and it's crowded and it's crazy and it's wild. And Jesus comes in on a donkey and they've got, they don't have fireworks. They wave palm branches and they're singing their, they're singing their fight song, which is Hosanna, Lord, save us. And they're singing it to God, but then Jesus shows up and he's popular and he's, he's a, kind of a celebrity and they're hoping for someone who will come and be the king, who will come and overthrow Rome and unite them and gather them. And so they turn their praise to God, to Jesus and say, you come and save us, Hosanna. Well, this has massive political undertoes and it makes the city go electric. But in the midst of all of this, one of Jesus's followers breaks rank, Judas decides to betray him. So we see Jesus next in the upper room and he's changing the, the, one of the most important, significant uh, uh, pinnacles of the Hebrew faith, this Passover meal, where they remember that they were slaves in Egypt and then by the plagues and with Moses and God's hand, they were saved out of all that. That's what the Passover meal was all about. They would remember those things. And Jesus said, no, 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 you're not gonna remember those things when you do this anymore. Now you're gonna remember me. And it blowing their minds and they're like, this guy, is, I don't know how to make sense of all the things he's saying, but he's saying, we're gonna remember this. And he says, it's gonna be a new covenant in, in my blood. You're gonna have access to God through relationship, not through sacrifice. And it's blowing their minds. And then they leave the upper room and they start walking towards the garden and he, he's walking through, through uh, 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 vineyards and he says, I'm the vine, you're the branches, remain and stay in me. And then he prays and he says, I want them to be in unity and have the kind of oneness, Father, that you and I have. They get to the Garden of Gethsemane and he says, you guys stay here. I'm gonna go off and pray. And he prays and he prays loud enough that they can hear him. And he says, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. But not my will, your will be done. And it says, sweat like drops of blood came down his face and he prayed to God because he knew what was about to happen. It's late in the night. They've eaten dinner. They've walked. They're in the garden and suddenly they hear feet marching and it's temple guards and it's Judas. And with a kiss, he betrays Jesus and he's arrested and they flee. And the scriptures say that no one remained. They all abandoned him because they knew what this meant. Within 24 hours, there'll be a mockery of a trial. They'll beat him. They'll hit him and flog him with a cat of nine tails, a barbed whip that will rip flesh from his body. They'll mock him and spit on him. They'll accuse him of all kinds of things that are false. And finally, they'll say, well, are you the king of the Jews? And he says, it is as you say. 
and they say, crucify him. And Pilate, the governor of, of, of this area from Rome, he doesn't want anything to do with it, but they bind his hands by saying, this man says he's a king, and we have no king but Caesar. And it's amazing how people will align themselves with government when they, their faith doesn't seem to be doing it for them. And so they align themselves with Caesar horrifically and say, crucify him. He deserves the death penalty. And within 24 hours, he's been arrested, condemned, beaten, nailed to a cross, and he's dead. The air has escaped the room. The movement is over. And at this moment, there are no Christians. There are no followers. They are hiding and they're hidden They've retreated into houses. Thankfully, the city is swelled with visitors. And so they're, they're, they're hiding in the crowds, hoping that no one will find them and arrest them for just being associated with him, knowing that the Jewish rulers and the religious leaders of that time seriously want to stomp out any trace of this rebellion and would happily kill them too. Jesus is crucified and he dies and they see him dead on the cross and they remove his body and, and, and the law at that time, there was no burial afforded to those criminals who were hung on a cross. It's why the Jewish scripture said, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. They were not given burial or anything. But Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy religious leader who was a follower of Jesus, and Nicodemus, who we recognize from very important conversations in John chapter 3, they come together and they approach Pilate. And with their wealth and influence, they say, can we at least have his body? And Joseph says, I have a family tomb. Can we place him in there? And Pilate agrees. I'm sure some commerce happens. And gives them the body of Jesus and they wrap it. And they put it in the tomb and, and they roll a stone in front of it. And the religious leaders of that time, they've been listening to Jesus more than the disciples and the followers of Jesus have. They've been listening critically to his words because they've been trying to entrap him. And they remember that he said something about, you tear this temple down in three days, I'll raise it again. And I'm not talking about the temple, I'm talking about me. They've listened and kind of put that together. And so they go to Pilate, the Roman ruler, and they said, his followers, they're crazy fanatics. And they're going to try and steal that body. So we got to make sure that doesn't happen. And Pilate says, well, do what you need to do to make it secure. So they go and they seal the stone around the tomb. They post a Roman guard, centurions, to watch the tomb to make sure nothing will happen to it. Sabbath falls after the third day. It's quiet. The city is no longer buzzing with the excitement of a potential Messiah and leader. The disciples are hiding. Everyone is sleeping easy who's in authority. And the scripture tells us in March chapter 16, verse 1, that when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought, bought spices so they may go and anoint Jesus' body. Now, this is interesting and important to note. They had to go buy spices because no one was expecting a funeral. This has happened incredibly fast. Imagine being arrested in the middle of the night, standing trial in the morning and being executed by the next night. No one was expecting this. It's been incredibly fast. They're shell-shocked. They went home. I mean, they were Hosanna in the streets just moments ago, and within 24 hours, you never trust the mob. It's crucify him! And he's dead and he's gone and they're hiding. The scriptures tell us they're behind locked doors. 
They're sending the women out to run errands and get food and supplies because they don't want to be seen. They're afraid their accents will give them away. They're Galileans in Jerusalem. And these women, the Sabbath ends and they get up early in the morning and they bring spices because they want to go and anoint Jesus's body. It says, verse 2, very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they're on their way to the tomb. Why do they want to go and anoint his body? Um, there's speculation that happens here. Here's what I can imagine. The guys who ended up being responsible on the fly for kind of packaging and anointing Jesus's body, uh, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, probably swell dudes, probably not proficient at that job. I don't know if you've ever seen a guy wrap a Christmas present. It's just not a natural proficiency for many of us. And so these ladies are like, we just want to honor his body and treat it right and prepare it for, and, and the guys are chicken anyways. They're not coming with us. They're locked, they're locked themselves in the room. So they go and they purchase spices and they're on their way to the tomb. And then as they're walking, I love this. And Mark says, they ask each other, um, who's going to roll away the stone from the entrance to the tomb? They haven't planned very well. They have a heart to do something. I just want you to catch the, 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 the amount of kind of mourning and pain that they're in. I don't know if you've ever been in this kind of mourning and pain, lost someone maybe that you loved or something hasn't gone your way, and people are asking you for details. And you're like, I don't know all the details. How are we going to get there? When's the food going to happen? When? Dude, I, I just don't know the details. Just make sure that the food's there. They're in this kind of situation. It's early in the morning. Sabbath has just ended. It's been quiet. Everyone's resting. They get up. They buy spices. They, 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 their Lord, they hoped he was the Messiah. And it turns out he's not because he's dead. But they still want to pay respect. And they're on their way. And they haven't even processed how they're going to get through the rock. They're not aware that it's been sealed or that there's a Roman guard, they haven't been there. They just know it needs to happen, and they have no strategy of how to do it. And verse 4 says, but when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which is very large, had been rolled away. The book of Matthew chapter 20 will tell the story, I won't go there now, of angels showing up, ripping the seal moving the stone, paralyzing the guards. The guards panic. They don't know what this is. They're Romans. This isn't their faith. They just recognize they've been overpowered by God. And they go to the religious leaders and they're like, we don't know what happened, but we couldn't stop it. The stone rolled away and they say, well, we're just going to pay you off to make up the story. And they flee. They don't know this, though. The disciples have been hiding. The women have also been with them. They've been behind locked doors trying to avoid any of this, but the stone has been rolled away, and the scriptures go on to tell us they show up. There's an angel, and he's like, why do you look for the dead among the living? And they go out into the garden, and they come across Jesus, but they don't recognize him. And he's like, why are you so worried? And it's like, they've taken my Savior. And they realize it's Jesus, and they freak out. So they run back, like we saw in the video, to tell the disciples what they've seen. And Luke tells us, Luke 24, 9, it says, When they came back from the tomb, speaking of the women, they told all these things to the eleven. Come on now, there's not twelve anymore. And to all the others, it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them, who told this to the apostles. Luke records this, and look at how Luke responds. He says, But they did not believe the women, because their words seemed to them like nonsense. What are you talking about? We saw him get beaten. 
We saw the nails driven through his hands and through his feet. We saw him breathe his last. We heard the words, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It is finished. (sighs) And he slumped over and he died. Up until that moment, hope hadn't fled. But at that point, hope was over. We're no longer followers. There's no movement to be a part of. There's no Christians. What you're saying, that the tomb is empty, that there was burial cloths, that you saw Jesus in the garden, is nonsense. None of them assumed a resurrection. None of them expected Jesus to do anything other than stay dead. You have a hard time believing the story. They were there and did not believe the story. Verse 12, Peter, however, and we know in the book of John that John goes with him. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, listen to this, wondering to himself what had happened. Peter does not have a clue what has happened at this point. Three days after he sees Jesus tortured, murdered, executed with a, 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 a no cause. Peter's looking at an empty tomb and grave clothes going, what the, what happened here? And I can believe he's probably processing. Did Pilate change his mind and, and take the body of Jesus and dispose of it like a criminal's death? The religious leaders, they couldn't have come and taken, it was Sabbath yesterday. They wouldn't have come and taken him yesterday. How in the world has this happened? Where is he? I just want you to catch and understand this. The men and women who experienced Easter documented their own disbelief. This is one of the greatest testimonies to this moment in history. Why so many believe, not because it was written down just in scripture, but because the men and women told the stories. They documented, they said, we didn't believe this. Can you imagine when Luke's writing, the church has sprung up, it's about 30 years after this event, and he's writing the story of what happened. He's interviewing Peter, and he's interviewing Mary, the mother of Jesus, and he's writing down the story, and Peter is leading the church. He is the top apex leader of this incredible movement 30 years later that are out there. And they're asking Peter about the story. And Peter's like, yeah, I ran to the tomb and I didn't know what in the world was going on. That's not the story you would tell. Here's the story you would tell. We were outside and we knew on the third day he was coming back. And we were waiting for the sun to come up. And it was like the ball dropping on New Year's. We are like, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, Four, three, two, one. Here comes Jesus. Smoke machine, fog machine. Jesus rocks out, you know. You know, dun, dun, dun. Smoke on the water's playing. I don't know what's playing. Something awesome's playing. Something awesome's playing. Jesus is coming out, right? Like that's the story you tell if you're making up stories. Not we were hiding. We sent the women because we didn't know what to do. I ran over there. Um, Peter omits that John beat him in the foot race, which I love. Right, doesn't, doesn't let Luke know that part of the story. And uh, John's like, I just want you to know I was running with him and I was faster. Peter was out of shape. Um, anyways, <laughs> Peter tells the story. And the story doesn't look good at all. None of the disciples look good. These are not superstitious people. They weren't given to superstition. The movement was dead. There was no group of Jesus followers hanging out, counting down, waiting for his every word. 
There was no hope. The Messiah that they were hoping for had been beaten, tortured, and killed, and was in the grave. It was the end. I heard one pastor say it this way, and I love it. He said, nobody was expecting nobody. (laughs) Nobody was expecting nobody. None of them were there. John chapter 20 tells us they've locked the doors, and they're hidden from the crowds and from people. And Peter runs sees that nothing's there and doesn't know what to do with it. He comes back and you can imagine the buzz in the room. The women are saying, we saw Jesus in the garden. And Peter's like, I don't know what you saw. You're crazy, but it is empty. And they're like, it is empty. We want to see. Wow, we're not going out there. It's scary out there. What if they see us and they see us snooping around the tomb and they capture us and they do to us what they did to him. We got to stay in here. Well, how long are we going to stay in here? Well, until the crowds all leave, then we'll leave and we'll slip out with the crowds and everybody can just go where they want to go and that'll be the end of it. And, and the, the, the ladies are like, you don't understand. We saw Jesus. And they're like, you guys are talking nonsense and we don't believe you. And, and uh, you know, stop telling stories. And then Luke 24 verse 36 says, while they were still talking about this, Jesus Jesus himself stood among them and said, peace be with you. Do you understand what's happening in the story at this point? I was, uh, I was trying to figure out what peace be with you translates out as in the Greek. And I, I didn't find this officially, but my best guess is it means don't freak out. Because <laughs> I don't know about you, but if I'm behind locked doors and we're having a debate about a guy that we just saw buried and killed and dead, and you're saying you saw him, and I'm saying there's no way that you saw him, and then suddenly he's just there on the other side of the locked door, and he's like, don't freak out. (laughs) That's a crazy moment of the story. He's like, peace be with you. Look at verse 37. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. This is an understatement. People don't just show up in your house after they're dead. That's not a thing that happens. None of them believed that it could happen. None of them thought that it would happen. And Jesus shows up and he's like, all right, everybody, I'm here. Don't freak out. Their response is, we're freaking out. We're freaking out. No way. Ah, I can just imagine them running around the room, getting back away from him, right? Like, what's going on? Because look at his next statement. Jesus said, uh, why are you troubled? <laughs> why do doubts rise in your minds? Jesus, are you serious? This is how you know Jesus has a sense of humor. Are you saying that the things you saw with your eyes and the words you heard with your ears and the things you touched, that those, you believe those things? You, the, seeing the skin get ripped off of me and seeing me hung on a cross and dying, is, is that bothering you? Why are you troubled? Why is doubt risen in your minds. And I think one of the most powerful Easter questions is this question. See, Jesus had a lot of fun with this statement and this question. Throughout his ministry, several instances when the disciples were frustrated or afraid or in tension, he went straight to the heart of their tension with this statement. He says, why are you troubled? Why do you fear? All the times when natural panic took its place, Jesus challenged, why are you in fear at this moment? There was one instance in particular, they're out on a boat and a storm hits and it's not a great big boat, but it's big enough that the 12 of them are on there and Jesus, and Jesus is having a siesta in the middle of the night, which is a good time to sleep, but the boat's rocking and waves are crashing and water's coming over the bow and the storm is getting serious and they're like, We're good fishermen and this boat's going down. 
And Jesus is just like, out. And someone's like, have we thought about waking up Jesus? And they're like, well, I don't know, what is he going to do? And they're like, finally they go and they wake him up. And they're like, master, master, wake up. Don't you care that there's a storm? And we're all going to drown? And he looks at him and he's like, why are you afraid? Um, Jesus, we're bailing water. The storm is hitting. The waves are crashing. What kind of question is that? And he goes, don't you have any faith? And then he tells the storm, hey, knock it off. And the storm knocks it off. This is insane. But this is the Jesus that the scriptures tell us about, that, that Peter tells us about, that John tells us about. And he says he showed up and they're in panic. And they're sad and the doors are locked and they're afraid for their lives. And in the midst of their worst circumstance, he goes, what's troubling you? What thing have you made true in your life that's more true in your life in this moment than the fact that I love you and I have your back and that you have access to me? What thing has gotten bigger than that in your life right now? I don't know if maybe that's the only thing you needed to hear this Easter season is what thing is going on that's so scary right now that's driving fear into your heart, into your relationships, physically, emotionally, spiritually, relationally, financially, that Jesus' response might be, hey, if I showed up in the middle of this, would you freak out or would you celebrate? Why are you so troubled? Why are doubts rising in your mind? You see, dealing with fear was always a priority for Jesus because he knew whatever we placed in that first spot where fear was driving us would replace him. So he never let that go. He never let that slide. That was never something he was okay with. I know in today's climate, I, I have conversations with people, followers of Jesus even, who are struggling with fear all the time. They look at the political climate. They look at their families. They look at their finances. They look at the, the, the literal climate. They look, they look at all the situations, and, and fear cre creeps up. And, and it would be such an easy thing to make any of those things, like an idol, first in their life. And Jesus is saying, wait a second, when I show up, why is fear dominating this conversation? Easter happens and Jesus shows up and they're freaking out. Look at how he responds to him. Verse 39, he goes, look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost doesn't have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. He's willing to deal directly with their fear. He's like, look, meat. There's meat. I'm solid. I'm not a ghost. Listen to this. Verse 41, and while they still did not believe it, seeing him solid was not enough reason when their circumstance was as horrific as it was for them to still believe it. It says they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement. He asked them, uh, do you have anything here to eat? Then they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took and he ate it in their presence. He ate a fish sandwich and they finally chilled out. They freaked out until they saw him eat a fish sandwich. Then they're like, okay, he's the real deal. He's the real, he's not going, if he's eating a fish sandwich, then he's like us, right? He's here. They touched him, they heard him, they didn't believe. But the fish sandwich changed everything. And then he says, then he explains some things. He's like, now that you've relaxed, you've calmed down, 
He said, this is what I told you while I was still with you, that everything must be fulfilled, what was written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and in the Psalms. And he says, then he opened their minds so they can understand the scriptures. He's like, you just have been listening, but you haven't been hearing what's going on. You kept wanting me to be one kind of leader, and I was a different kind of leader. You wanted me to come and have a political overthrow, and I was coming for relational connectivity to you and the Father. I was going to change everything. It says, he told them this is what was written, that the Messiah will suffer from rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name, listening to all nations, beginning Jerusalem. He said, he said I'm going to come. I'm going to give you an opportunity to get out from the weight of sin, which is capping your relationship with my father. And you're gonna take that news to every single place. You're gonna start here and then you're gonna go. And then he goes, you are witnesses of these things. You see, Easter matters because this is the event that started the church. Before this event, there were no Christians. Do you understand? The two billion that we're talking about, none of that happens without this event, without this moment. Not because it was written down in this book, but because it was lived out by the men and women of this time who believed they saw Jesus. The scripture tells us there was like 500 additional witnesses. It tells us that Peter, who was a follower of Jesus, then a denier of Jesus, then a follower of Jesus, then a runaway from Jesus, finally accepted Jesus in confidence and he changed his life and became the leader of the church. It tells us that James the brother of Jesus, the biological half-brother of Jesus, who was not a follower of Jesus, the entire life and earthly ministry of Jesus. He wasn't a follower. Matter of fact, he was embarrassed by his brother and didn't like what his brother's attention was bringing to the family. They didn't like that. James, I, I love this analogy, but it's just true. I don't know if you have a brother or a sister, but what would it take for your brother or sister to convince you that they were God? More than healing some people, more than fish and loaves, it would take a lot. You know what it took for James? James went from not a follower of Jesus to the leader of the church in Jerusalem, eventually dying for his faith. Why? Because Easter happened. Because he saw his brother beaten, murdered, hung on a cross, dead, in the grave for three days, and then he was eating fish sandwiches. Fish sandwiches changed everything. We know that Paul believed and saw Jesus after the crucifixion. The resurrection is the foundation of the Christian faith. It only matters if it happened. It only matters if it happened. And what it did was restore hope and create followers of Jesus. Before that, none of that was going on. The resurrection is the foundation of our faith. Peter talks about this much later in life. And he talks about why Easter matters. He's much later in life and he's writing a, a letter to the church and he's introducing his letter to the church. And in 1 Peter chapter one, he's kind of looking back at the life and ministry that he's lived and, and uh, maybe looking forward to understanding the kind of death he's eventually gonna pay uh, the price for not recanting his belief. And he says this, he says, praise be to the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us, listen to this, new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Peter, who was afraid in the middle of the night of a middle school girl 
outing him and outing his faith, denied Jesus. Now with the boldness of fish sandwiches, of having seen and spent time with Jesus, eaten with him on the beach, hung out with him, went fishing with him after he was risen from the dead, now stands before religious leaders and says, we can't deny what we've seen. Kill us if you have to. But if you're gonna follow Jesus, you need to know what we saw. And here's what we saw, that God, our Father and Lord, in his great mercy, gave us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Listen to this, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This is the inheritance that's kept in heaven for you. He says, because of what Jesus accomplished, we're not worried even about death anymore because we have the promise of heaven. And you know what happens when a follower of Jesus stops being afraid of death? The enemy has no more tools to kind of hang over your head. And there's nothing that can staunch the faith of that kind of person. He says, who through faith are shielded by God's power into the coming of the salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. Listen to this. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. You see, Peter saw the crucifixion. He still believed. He said, you might still go through some grief. Come on now. I mean, no, you're gonna go through some grief. He says, but our hope is no longer, no longer in what we see here, but in what he did. And here's the last reason Easter matters. It just points us towards hope, points us towards hope. Those South Park guys, they had a great idea that if religion was just about trying to feel happy, it'd be useful just for that reason, but it's not hopeful if that's all that it is. It's only hopeful if it's true. It only restores hope if Jesus really did conquer the grave. It only restores hope if Jesus really did create a way so that you and I can have a relationship with the Father in heaven again. It only restores hope in that situation. Hope is what happens not just when we feel happy, but when we know who Jesus is and what he did for us. I wonder, I wonder if Jesus were to ask today, why are you afraid? What are you worried about? Where is your faith? That death isn't the end. I wonder what thing hope could replace for you today. I'm actually gonna have the ushers pass out for you um, something to take away. And it's just a little, uh, it's a little, it's actually a sticker. It looks like a bookmark, but it's a sticker you can stick on your Bible or on your notepad. And it just says that hope is greater than and I'm wondering if this morning, as you heard the, the Easter story, if maybe, just maybe, Jesus is asking you, hey, what's, what are you afraid of? What are you worried about this morning? That my death and my resurrection and my showing up in that situation could restore hope. And I, I want to do something kind of different as we close. The band's going to play a song. It might be a song you, we haven't done here before, so, so, so you may not recognize it. And I, I just want to give you permission to kind of listen to the words as you think about this. But there's Sharpies in, in the chairs in front of you. Hopefully first, church, first service didn't take them away. I didn't look to make sure they replaced them. That's my bad. I apologize. But there should be some Sharpies in the chair seats in front of you. And I just want you to take a moment while the band plays to, to think about what thing hope could replace for you. Maybe it's fear. Maybe it's worry. Maybe it's finances. Maybe it's a relationship that's gone wrong. Maybe it's a physical sickness. And, and, and the message of Easter might just be that hope is greater 
Because Peter says we have a living hope. It's not a dead hope. It didn't go into the grave and then end. It's not just about happiness and never facing any hard times, but it's greater than every circumstance we might face. And so what I'd love for you to do is to take, a, take one of those Sharpies, and you may have to share, and just write in what it is that hope is greater than. And the band's gonna play. And as, as you have that, once you've written that in, would you stand with us? And we're gonna close out our Easter service just worshiping and declaring that the God of all living hope got up out of the grave and that Easter matters today. Hallelujah. We're gonna pray here before I let you go. And, and listen, I'm gonna ask you, the scripture doesn't, ever tell us to close our eyes when we pray like that's more spiritual or whatever but sometimes it just eliminates distractions so if you're comfortable would you just bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment and I'm just keenly aware that there were no followers of Jesus until they believed this part of the story so for some of you this story has been unbelievable up until this point and maybe today would be the first time in your life that you would say you know what I get it I see what Jesus did. I hear the eyewitness testimony and I see the testimony of, of time and history. And I, I've never really joined my, my wagon to pit, hit, hooked my wagon to this thing. But maybe today would be the day where I take a step of faith. And I don't have all the answers, but I know enough of the questions to know that today's the day that I need to make a decision to try to, to, to move. I've been managing on my own. Come on now. I've been managing on my own, but i got to move out of that kind of thinking and say, all right, if hope really is greater, then I'm going to take a step of faith today and put my hope in a living hope in Jesus. And nobody's looking around. Eyes are closed. But if that's you, I just want to give you a moment to say, yeah, I need to do that. I've never done that. Would you just lift a hand in this place? Yeah, yeah, yeah all over this place. You can keep that hand up. Maybe you're here and, and you've been following Jesus, but you, you've, you've lost sight of that hope piece and, and having a, a moment to just say, you know what? The thing I need to do today is make a decision that the living hope is gonna be greater than the circumstance I'm in today. And I needed to hear that today and I'm gonna start living differently because I'm gonna allow Jesus to replace the fear and a living hope to come in and you're in that kind of camp today and you just need to say, yeah, that's me. Would you lift a hand in this place? Yeah, I see those hands. Just lift a hand. Say, yeah, that's me. Yeah. Jesus, you see these hands raised. Many just trusting you. And I pray you would do what you promise in your word to do. Show up and demonstrate your power and authority and faithfulness in their lives. God, so many lifting a hand saying, I, I haven't put my trust in you today. And, and God, it, it would be so easy to make an emotional decision, but we wanna make a decision based on what we've heard and what we know to experience the life that you provide. And I pray in the name of Jesus, would you demonstrate your faithfulness in their life? And would you do the thing that only you can do? Give new life and new hope to each and every one of us. And we celebrate you and we thank you in this moment. In the name of Jesus, I pray amen and amen and amen. Church, he is risen. Amen. Would you give him a hand?